welcome to Foss and Crafts, a podcast about free software, free culture, and making things together. With my co-host Morgan and my co-host Chris. So this week we are joined by one of the first people that I met in the free software world at my very first Libre Planet. Chris introduced me to Sumana and uh, I just started talking with her and I spent like 45 minutes discussing my dissertation and Greek keys and public and private spaces within homes and just kind of rambling and then found out that she was the keynote speaker and got super flustered because I was like, oh no, I'm a noob here. And I just spent 45 minutes rambling at the keynote speaker. But she was so gracious and so interested in my dissertation that the fact that that was one of my first experiences kind of interacting more broadly in person in the free software world felt so inviting. So I would like to welcome Sumana. Sumana, would you like to introduce yourself? Thank you. What a, what a wonderful... I'm, I'm very grateful that I was able to provide uh, a little bit of hospitality in by just simply genuinely being interested because your your work is interesting. Thank you. I feel like were we maybe talking in the the green room, the room where volunteers and the people who run the conference and people who are about to speak can prepare? Does that sound about right? No, it was at the FSF offices at the meet and greet. Ah, yes. yes and yes, it was yes. we were like kind of packed into a doorway because that meet and greet is always so overcrowded. <laughs> I think I might have drawn a Greek key, like, on a whiteboard. Yeah, yeah, this this all sounds, uh, yeah, exactly, right. I'm very grateful. Thank you uh, for inviting me on. Thank you for sharing that, that conversation and for all the conversations past and to come. I am Sumana Harihadeshwara. I live in New York City, and I've been involved in free and open source software in some way or another since 1998, uh, back in 98, just as a, a user, right, and an enthusiast. And in fact, the Libre Planet keynote that I was there to give was what I wish I'd known in 1998. It was a talk about things that I have learned in the years since. Uh, that I would like to go back in time and tell my my younger self. Um, I have been a technical writer, a project manager, a community manager, liaison, gardener, wrangler type person. Uh, I've had a a variety of other jobs, uh, sort of more than I can quite count. I've participated as a user, as a volunteer contributor, as a paid contributor, and as a, well, let's see if I can find some money to pay me for this contributor, <laughs> which is its own particular, I think, Chris, you're, you're familiar with that one. <laughs> Very familiar. Yes. Yep. And uh, I actually met my spouse through the free software movement as well. Uh, I think actually it could be that one of you doesn't already know this uh, because my spouse, Leonard Richardson, was one of the founders of segfault.org a geek humor site that concentrated a lot on uh, making fun of the free software movement as in a loving <laughs> insider way. Uh, and I discovered that site via Slashdot in the early 90s. And that's how I met Leonard was I started reading his blog because, you know, I found out about Segfault. And then we met in person much after that. And then it was only in uh, 2001 that we started uh, hanging out in person and, and eventually dating and so on. Yeah, but I met a lot of my friends and colleagues and indeed my spouse 
through free software. Um, also, I am a person who enjoys uh, science fiction and fantasy, and I participate in fandom, which is a way of talking about people who like these things talking to each other <laughs> um, and, and sometimes making stuff in a variety of ways to uh, show or demonstrate or celebrate what they like and don't like about uh, the things that they like. And uh, I write a tiny bit of fan fiction and I've made a few fan vids. And I also sometimes perform stand-up comedy or similar bits of entertainment uh, about things that I that I like and that are interesting. Um, and I perform at WISCON and similar science fiction conventions. And I also perform stand-up comedy about free software and about being a technologist at relevant conventions and things like that. So those are some of the things that uh, we may end up talking about. Yeah, and if you ever get a chance to watch some of Sumina's stand-up comedy, I would Highly recommend it. <laughs> Thank you very much. And I'll, I, I think maybe I'll even give a sample later on in the show. Ooh. That would be wonderful. Ooh. Right. Um, and then uh, the thing that's really absorbing uh, most of my work time right now is that a few years ago, I started a consultancy focusing on free and open source software called Change Set Consulting. And it's me plus subcontractors on a per project basis. And I provide project management and maintainership and a variety of related services to free software projects. And uh, based on the skills that I have learned before and during uh, this consulting work, I am working on a book or book-shaped thing, which will be about how to get stuck projects unstuck, aimed at people who perhaps haven't really managed things before and who are becoming maintainers of existing projects and know that they need to improve things, but would like some structured help on how. That sounds like such an important thing to have a manual on. It really does, doesn't it? And if it already existed, I wouldn't have to write it, but I don't think it exists. If you know of one <laughs> that already exists, please let me know. The, the closest there is, is Carl Fogel's producing open source software, which is a great 101 for you are starting a project, mm -hmm. but there's a lot of stuff uh, that I think we need guidance on. A lot of, uh, I should say a lot of people need guidance on that is the 201, right? You're not yeah. starting a project from scratch greenfield. You're going in brownfield. So great. we'll talk more about that later, I think. Yeah, definitely. So I think we're going to start this show off talking about your craft experiences and the things that you do in your free time. Would you like to talk a little bit about uh, your sketching? Sure, yeah. Uh, like a lot of people, I, when I was a child, did some amount of doodling, but I did not consider myself a good artist. Uh, I was very much in the, the stick figure and, well, maybe if you squint, you could figure out what it is kind of, uh, kind of mood. And then a few years ago, one day during uh, a long lecture, I just started in my notebook, my paper notebook where I was taking notes about the, the meeting that I was in, uh, basically, I started just trying to very realistically draw the architecture around me. Ooh. It's just like, oh, there's an interesting window over there, that kind of thing. You know, oh, that... That particular corner seems like it has a lot of interesting layers to it. So 
I found that it was a really effective way for me to get some of that nervous energy out and, and have the bit of myself that was too antsy to pay attention, just mm -hmm. have something to pay attention to. And so I started doing that a bit more while I was doing things like on the subway, uh, mm -hmm. for instance, while I was in transit or something like that, uh, or while I was in a meeting or a lecture that I needed to pay enough attention to uh, and not, for instance, get distracted by being on my phone or something like that. And I enjoy it. Sketching has been a, uh, a time-honored tradition of uh, basically something to do with your hands while you're doing other things mm -hmm. for all that mm -hmm. nervous energy. <laughs> Do either of you draw as a method of sort of channeling your distraction? Oh. Th this is basically what Chris does. We we carry index cards everywhere so that Chris has something to do with their hands. Well, yeah, and it actually, it starts as far back as when I was actually really young. So I have a very strong case of attention deficit disorder. Uh, like actually when I got diagnosed, the person said, well, this is the most obvious mm -hmm. case of attention deficit disorder I've ever seen. So, you know, being able to have something, you know, if you have that, you know, your mind sometimes you can struggle if your mind is kind of not sufficiently engaged. Um, and um, what my mom actually often frequently did was she would always you know, if I, we were sitting somewhere and I was looking like I was going mad, she would just hand me um, receipts. And then eventually she started bringing home the bits of paper that were chopped off from the printer. And uh, um, mm. and I just had stacks and stacks mm. of like very tiny sketches that I would do. And yeah, that was like, it was, it was interesting because uh, eventually that became something I wanted to take more seriously. But initially, you know, it was just something to be able to bring myself happiness in between these moments where I didn't have another thing to do. Um, I have like an album full of index card sized doodles that Chris drew for me. And when drawing on paper, Chris has a really hard time drawing anything bigger than like two inches by two inches. That's true. Yep. That's interesting. Like, that's about just, okay, that's the natural size that you're used to working in, partly because you just started with the backs of receipts. Is that how that works? Yeah. So Chris has like full eight and a half by 11 size sketchbooks and all of the drawings are like little two by twos on the corners. That's gorgeous. That's really <laughs> gorgeous. I was thinking about uh, something that I was, uh, I, I've thought about for a long time, which is the idea that if you have the space to practice something in um, um, a period of your life or in a space of your life where it feels like no big deal, uh, then you have so much space to practice without thinking that you're practicing. It's just something to while away the time. Uh, I believe, you know, the backs of receipts, that, that really echoes with me because when I'm doing my stand-up comedy, when I'm writing out ideas and stuff like that, I find it a lot easier to work on scraps of paper uh, for maybe similar reasons. There's just the subconscious way that it's easier. There's less at stake um, and something like that. Uh, I have a sketchbook that my spouse got me off of uh, some kind of crowdfunding thing, maybe a Kickstarter called ReSketch. And it's a bunch of paper that was going to go into the industrial recyclers or dumpsters and so every most pages are somewhat different. Sometimes you kind of can't use some of a page because half of a legal <laughs> case is printed on it, right? And they're different colors and different textures. And 
it does lower the stakes in a way yeah. that I feel like, okay, it's all organized neatly, but this is in a sense all paper that would have gone to waste. And then that lowers the stakes for me. Does that help you kind of upgrade then from like, if you're starting out at that kind of like things are, are low stakes, does that eventually transition into something that might be higher stakes at, at some kind of point? It's interesting. I really appreciate having a thing I can do in my life that on some level does not matter. Uh, mm -hmm. that, that it's okay if I never get better at this. There's so much in my life where I feel a desire to get better because it matters in some way. Because if I don't, then people will be hurt or disappointed or the world will be less good than it needs to be or, or something like that. Uh, I need to make this dent in the universe. I, I need to, I see a problem. I need to solve it and so on. Um, I feel as though I live in a world where in terms of visual art, there exists all the visual art that I could want. Um, that is not a, I don't feel a lack of there needs to be better or more visual art in the world. Or there needs to be visual art of this particular type. Um, so, because there is no feeling of need and lack that I am trying to fulfill by this, because it's just a literal pastime, um, a thing to pass the time and uh, and to create a little bit of fun, you know, momentary joy, it it never needs to be high stakes, and that's part of what lets me do it. Now, I will say I haven't drawn or sketched a lot in the last several months. I did a, quite a bit. Uh, back when I was doing a lot of travel, you know, when I was on the subway very frequently. And now I haven't opened up my sketchbook and actually done anything in it for a while because the configuration of circumstances for when and why I would do it was usually there is something I am doing that my body needs to do where my hands are free and maybe um, I'm bored. And I just don't have that particular configuration of circumstances that much right now. But one thing I have done a little bit more is as uh, risks have waxed and waned over the course of the pandemic, sometimes I have, uh, you know, taken a bike ride to a nearby park and while masked and while sitting far from other people, get taken out the sketchbook and sketched while like listening to a podcast. I imagine part of that also is that like you're very familiar with all of the architectural aspects of your apartment yes, and therefore don't need to sketch them. I think there's, there's actually, uh, you, you've hit on something, uh, you know, I, I really enjoy drawing something for the first time or for the fifth time and seeing how as my eye sharpens, I can see it and, and draw it more accurately, right. And more precisely. And uh, I gotta say that my eyes really get a lot of my living room now. So, um, <laughs> but at least the window outside is is changing as as winter comes here in New York City. I'll I'll be able to maybe find some new things there. I also want to mention uh, I uh, two things. One is that there's a particular brush pen that I saw a recommendation of on Cool Tools, and I've enjoyed playing with that a lot. Um, a brush pen gives you the thickness and thinness of line, right? Just flowing smoothly into each other. And I just feel like anything I draw with a brush pen just looks amazing. It just looks fantastic. I, I, it just looks like, I know it's not proper calligraphy, but it just looks gorgeous the way that calligraphy looks to me. That's how you get all of the expressive lines. If you actually have skill, then yes. <laughs> uh, the other thing that I wanted to mention was the role of drawing in for me fixing memory 
uh, there is a particular in my notebook, there's a particular mm-hmm. place where I drew some blinds, some window shades, right? So it is a lot of straight lines connecting together. It is a bunch of rectangles and it looks very, very accurate, uh, like a more of a photorealistic style. And I remember being at a meeting of, I believe, my local Democratic club, hearing a nurse talk about Medicare for all and doing this to busy my hands and eyes while I listened to her. Most of what she was saying, I think I already agreed with or knew. Um, And so I had a lot of cognitive surplus to use up and I used it on making the exact right lines, you know. That's actually a technique that I suggest to my students when I am teaching art history, too, is if you have trouble uh, keeping all of the different paintings or sculptures Mm. or buildings apart, when you first see them, just do a quick basic sketch of the composition, even if it's just like a line drawing, because that tactile memory helps solidify your visual memory. Right. Yeah, that makes a tremendous amount of sense to me. I should also mention, by the way, that uh, I basically confine myself to uh, physical objects that humans have made and sometimes trees. Uh, And if I attempt (laughs) to draw a part of a living body of any animal, humans included, uh, things go real hilarious real fast. (laughs) I like the idea of you've got just like this beautiful architecture and then stick figures inside of it. I drew uh, at one point, uh, I drew my mother, I tried to draw my mother's face. Um, And I think one of my attempts came out looking a bit like the comedian Jay Leno. (laughs) I think another of the attempts looked like just sort of a generic elderly right wing Indian politician. (laughs) <laughs> uh you just get that vibe uh and then at some point i can't i i did something that like i look at it and it at least reminds me more of my mom than of any other particular person or stereotype well and as far as like the ambition of drawing goes one yeah. portraits are one of the most difficult things you can do two Portraits of people that you know and love are harder because if you're just if you're just sketching someone on the subway, there's low stakes, right? It doesn't matter if it actually looks like that person because that person is just a random person that you saw on the subway. They're not going to probably look at it and get critical of you, or and that might be weird if they did, right? Like, <laughs> yeah. how dare you? You know, you got. You, you got my sideburns completely wrong. The, the random person on the subway is like, why do I look like Jalen? <laughs> right. But your mom, if if she sees a portrait that you made of her that looks like Jay Leno, that could be a conversation that you have to have. Unfortunately, right. I think uh, everything worked out okay. I will say one thing. Um, if you are in the, a position where you have to do some caretaking of somebody and you're kind of always in a state while you're with them of well, I kind of can't get into doing something because they might wake up from this nap and then they might need me. Sketching is a great way to use that time because you can put it down at any moment. It's fine. It's an unfinished sketch, right? It's not like uh, reading a book or uh, something like that where you might have to kind of catch up and come back to it as much. At least that's my experience. And combining some of the points that we've just had too, when you're doing caretaking, you can get caretakers fatigue where all of the moments blend into each other and you just get overwhelmed. But sketching could be a way to distinguish things and actually create memories. Oh, that's interesting. 
So you mentioned that you were using uh, this brush pen, and uh, I, I guess one nice thing about using a physical uh, piece of medium like such as that, you know, a, a physical a physical tools is that um, they're very oftentimes there's no free, you know, as free software activists, we oftentimes like to try to use as much free software as we can to be able to produce artwork. Um, and if you're just, you know, sketching with a, um, you know, a, a pen that has no digital component, then you're you're free by default. Uh, but so I'm kind of curious, you know, what are, are, are there other types of crafty projects that you've worked on um, where you have um, either had to debate whether or not you were able to do the things you wanted to do using free software or where you were able to do something particularly interesting by using free software? That's a, a good question. So when it comes to making art that other people are going to experience that's audio and or visual in nature, um, where it's going to be transmitted over the internet, right? Then there's a bunch of, all right, well, where do you even host it, right? What CMS do you host it on and stuff like that. Uh, and so there's two kinds of art that I make where that's relevant. Um, one of them is fan vids and the other is stand-up comedy. So fan vidding is an art form where people re-splice different bits of visual media, including moving images, usually to the tune of a pop song uh, and use adjacency and montage and juxtaposition and sequencing and re reordering to make points, tell stories, uh, make jokes, celebrate things, and so on. So this, this has been happening since uh, something like the 60s or 70s, the first time that someone did something like this. It was using uh, slides uh, that were film stills from the original series of Star Trek, uh, showing Kirk and Spock interacting with each other. And this person uh, put these, I think it might've been Candy Fong, put these slides together and played an audio recording of the song, Both Sides Now. And after that, basically as technology for audio and video recording, playback and editing has moved forward and what is available to consumers has moved forward. You know, people did work on VHS and, and uh, on, you know, on tape and then uh, DVDs and, and now uh, people can transmit um, things in, uh, you know, online in various formats. And when I started fan vidding, it was to make a particular vid. I had the idea uh, well, I mean, I think I'd done a little video editing for fun using iMovie on a Mac in the mid 2000s. Um, but uh, then when I, I mean, that was then 10 years later, uh, I wanted to make a particular point with a particular fan video. And so I thought, well, I got to learn how to vid. I got to learn how to vid on Linux because I use Linux and that's what I use. So I tried a bunch of different video editing programs just to see, okay, if I have some bit of video that I've ripped off a DVD that I own with handbrake and I start trying to divide it into clips and move things around, does it crash? And many of them, the answer was, yep, yep, yep. It crashes, it crashes, it crashes until I finally got to KDEN Live, uh, and which crashed the least. And uh, it did not crash during doing the most basic thing. Uh, and so I went ahead, as opposed to, I think PTV and Cinelera and maybe a couple of the things I tried. I think at some point I even, I tried to learn Blender enough to do this. And after about an hour or an hour and a half, I couldn't even 
uh, do the most basic thing of like importing a video file or something. And so I, I just was like, no, I'm going to try something else. Um, so, uh, or that, that might've been later when I was doing another project. But uh, So I used uh, Emacs uh, for doing some text editing to understand, okay, just thinking through what's going to go in here. Uh, I used LibreOffice for a spreadsheet uh, to match up, all right, what scenes are going to go with what lyrics. Um, I published the thing in a combination of using DreamWidth, a blogging service, and uh, I did use Google Drive for some file hosting um, at the time. I was worried that I would possibly get a huge burst of traffic that would overwhelm, you know, the self-hosting that I had. And uh, I also used Critical Commons, which I believe is free software, uh, as a service that also hosts fan videos. Um, and I made subtitles using the GNOME built-in, uh, the, the, the app that comes with GNOME for making subtitles, for making .srt files. Um, and uh, I ended up having to, you know, I learned a lot. People have shared a lot of tutorials about how to do things like correct aspect ratios when you're bringing in uh, both movies and TV and things that were made a long time ago, which some of them are going to be 16 by 9, some of them are going to be 3 by 4. Uh, I, uh, yeah, I, I used a bunch of software. The, the place that I spent the most time was within KDEN Live, um, messing with the lengths of clips and moving them around and stuff like that. Um, and I also used YouTube-DL uh, a fair amount because part of what I did was I grabbed movie trailers and uh, commercials and things like that from YouTube that I uh, used as part of what I was cutting together. So the video that I made was called Pipeline. Pipeline is called that because there is this idea that diversity and inclusion in the tech industry is a matter of getting more people of whatever marginalized set of identities in, in the door, teach the girls to code and so on. But along the way, once a person of some under-indexed group is in the tech industry, um, often they have a bunch of bad experiences. And so it, you've heard the phrase leaky pipeline, perhaps. And there's a, a bunch of stuff that I wanted to cut together, and I hope I succeeded at doing so, about, well, here are the, the glossy images that the industry might show saying, come, 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 trying to woo us, but then actually... Uh, it doesn't treat us so great. And then we leave. Uh, I, I, I haven't left, but many have. And um, in a sense, the industry as a system does not care because it thinks, well, there will be someone else coming along tomorrow to take your place. And I used the song uh, by Taylor Swift, Blank Space, which is about this dynamic in a romantic relationship. Um, yeah. So, uh, Morgan, you, you saw it at some point after, uh, after it came out. It is a very hard-hitting uh, video. It, it, if you are in any way part of a marginalized group within the software world, it, it's very relatable. And it's not recent, right? It's several years old at this point. Yep, it is more than five years old, and I would really like for it to stop feeling relevant. It would be great if it was <laughs> less relevant now than it was five years ago, but it doesn't feel that way. I, 
I think I teared up the first time I watched it. Yeah, you're not alone. There are people who cried. Uh, multiple people have watched it and cried. And that, to, to have made a piece of art that is moving to people in that way is an amazing thing. I know that there are people who have actually shown this video in college classrooms. Mm -hmm. uh, it has been shown at tech conferences. Mm -hmm. Amazing. Yeah, it would be nice if it was shown in, like, you know somewhat more of the corporate culture that does this because they might be the people who need to see it but that's not and that could be yeah. happening we don't know we wouldn't know and that, that's not to say that the free software world doesn't have these problems because i've never been part of the corporate uh software development community but i still related to that video Oh, I'm sorry that you related to it, and I'm glad that I was able to reflect this experience back to you in a way that um, was meaningful to you. It validates feelings, even if they're bad feelings to have, because, you know, you feel seen. Right. It's interesting. I've been thinking about what is the, what is the function of a horror story? Yeah. Right? Um, some people... They say that they like it for the same reason that they like going on a roller coaster, right? You get a thrill. But there are particular kinds of horror stories that also serve as, yeah, validation of, yep, this, this terrible yep. thing happens. And here is how it feels. Uh, here is a reflection of how it feels, not just that the terrible thing is happening, but that perhaps one of the terrible ripple effects is that other people aren't believing you. Yeah. Okay. Chris, I can't recall. Have you seen Pipeline? I have. Uh, I actually, I saw it in, uh, I, I saw it shortly after you posted it originally. So I have a memory of it, um, but I, uh, I haven't had a chance to watch it uh, as recently. I think you had posted it on the Fediverse uh, recently. And uh, is that when you wa saw it, Morgan, was when it was recently posted on? I saw it actually when Sumina was here. Oh, right, right, right. Okay. Like we were sitting at our dining room table watching it. <laughs> So, okay, right. Um, so, so I saw it a, a, f a number of years ago, um, and I, I have a I have a memory of it, but I feel like I would like to refresh my memory uh, before okay. we put out this episode. But, but yes, it All did right. it did really strike me. Um, thank you, thank you. Yeah. I think one of the things that I want to mention is where this video falls in the the history and the heritage of fan vids. So. A lot of fan vids are single source, right? They're talking about a particular mm -hmm. story um, and they're using video source from a particular TV show or film or something like that, or a game. Or fandom that's got like multiple series or whatever. Sure, sure, yeah. So for instance, the Marvel Cinematic Universe includes multiple films and uh, a TV show and, and multiple yeah. TV shows and stuff like that. But um and then there's uh, a heritage of multi-vids. And these are videos, and I, I'm simplifying, right? And if someone wants to go to fanlore.org, they can find out a lot more about the, the history of vidding and uh, all the different things that people do. Um, but the heritage of multi-vids, uh, multi-source vids, is often one of making some kind of interesting commentary about a pattern that is present in a bunch of different TV shows, movies, games, comics, what have you. Um, and I I was basically inheriting from, from that mantle. Um, and sometimes these are very celebratory. 
sometimes they're funny, sometimes they're sad or melancholy or cutting or, or incisive and so on. And so I drew, for instance, uh, from the Matrix movies and from the the internship which is a film basically about people who have an internship at Google. I drew from some Batman comics and from the ads for code schools, from the social network, uh, from Batman, uh, from documentaries about the history of programming, about the history of IBM and about Steve Jobs. And I, I do remember mm-hmm. one bit that you ended up including was uh, Ghostwriter, mm-hmm. the, the the excellent Ghostwriter clip. That's right. Um, that's right. Yeah. Um, and there's been so many depictions of people in software, mm-hmm. right? And sometimes they uh, – and one of the other things that I do, did was that I used screenshots from tweets and blog posts about – the experience of being in an industry that sometimes feels like it doesn't want you. Um, so that is uh, the particular kind of, of vid this was. And I really appreciate that free software made it possible for me to release yeah. all this. So, so um, you, you mentioned that the cross that like things that go cross series often are talking about a pattern that exists, uh, you know, across almost a, a series of media. And then it, it sounds to me like that's kind of, um, I'm guessing the majority of them are kind of like the way that you read, you end up on the TV tropes wiki and you start going down this, you know, rabbit hole and you're like, oh, I never realized that all these shows had the same thing showing up on over and over. But in a certain sense, you're kind of more piercing the veil, which, you know, good media should do in the general case. Uh, um, but you know, very directly, I think, aiming for taking something from these pieces and instead of just aiming at the content within the specific things that you're watching, pointing outward at the world that the, the viewer is, is, is coming from. It's kind of like the, the trope of our world so, in a certain sense. Right, yeah. Sometimes, um, I want to mention here uh, that there are also multivids that only use, let's say, two or three sources. Um, there's one by Laura Shapiro called Only a Lad, that specifically compares three different uh, TV shows or, or films to talk about the bad boy trope, for instance, um, comparing, I think, Crycheck from the X-Files, uh, Loki from the Marvel Cinematic Universe, and Spike from uh, Angel and Buffy. Um, so, you know, that, that really goes deep into, into those three and shows you, uh, through really wonderful use of uh, sound and, and uh, sequencing, how uh, these shows give you these particular characters and, and who these people hurt, um, despite the fact that on some level they're also fan favorites, right? Laura Shapiro is asking you, the viewer, hey, like, you're maybe excusing this person for this behavior. Here's what they did. Um, anyway, uh, there's also then uh, vid- very much multi-videos that take it many, many, many sources. And yeah, like go beyond sometimes the world of specifically just showing you what's in the media and takes a look at the external world as well. Uh, one of those is Straightening Up the House by, I believe, Erythros, which talks about how the Marvel universe of movies is much straighter, much more heterosexual and less queer than what is in the comics. Mm. And so it uses uh, screenshots and video of 
people, you know, in our world giving interviews and talking about the choices that have been made and things like box office figures, as well as clips from the films and uh, scans from the comics, uh, which are, uh, I, I think, amazingly done. This is the kind of vid that should be shown in, in classrooms. Um, it, it's, a, it's a tremendous achievement. Um, so I, I should also mention that, uh, you know, I'm a fan vidder who's made a few vids and there's so many people who have a tremendous wealth of experience, um, who have done a lot more than me. And so if you hear from a fan vidder who's done more than me and who has a different point of view about what is going on with these different, you know, categorizations and trends, please listen to them. <laughs> well, I think that being part of the community who consumes fan vids also makes you relevant a relevant person to talk on this topic even if you've only made a few yourself sure yeah this is yeah sure i I hear what you're saying um i i'm really grateful that learning the skill of fan vitting has helped me consume media a bit differently i think you know once i've been fan vitting for a little while it's like my eyes are a bit more used to that visual language than when i'm watching a bit of film i notice Mm -hmm. some things that they're doing a little bit more so is this has the skills that you've picked up in fan vitting uh, translated to anything outside of fan vitting itself? Other than just, you know, noticing mm-hmm. the mm-hmm. things that are happening in the videos. Right. Right. Obviously a valuable skill, but. Sure. I'll mention one thing that I think pops up a bit more uh, once I've fan vitted a while, which is noticing when you're watching a conversation in some filmed medium and you're seeing a reaction shot for a little while instead of seeing mm-hmm. the person speaking, that makes it easier for the editors to yeah. splice together audio. Right, that kind of thing. Um, but in terms of, for instance, using my video editing skills, yeah, I, I learned how to video edit uh, in you know some with modern tools because of fan vitting, and then I have used those skills to help uh, the free software community in a few different ways, uh, the the free software world. Um, One is that I created a fundraiser video for Software Freedom Conservancy, where I filmed myself talking and did a little bit of exterior B-roll near my local bookstore and cut it together into a video to help explain to people what Conservancy does and why people should donate to them. And then more recently, as a project manager for PIP, a Python package installer tool, I filmed myself and asked a bunch of my team to film themselves saying certain lines into the camera. And then I edited that together with a light music soundtrack as a two minute public service announcement that we distributed on YouTube about changes coming to PIP and how people should prepare. And I'm really glad that having that particular tool in my tool belt makes certain things Mm -hmm. possible, right? That are not possible. And and this goes back to the no big deal theory that you were talking about earlier too, right? You learn the skills um, because you want to create fan vids and then they relate uh later and when we were preparing for this episode we noticed there was an overlap uh with this thing too chris do you want to talk about your uh your software freedom conservancy contribution well well we we like to take any opportunity we can to uh promote and support software freedom conservancy so i'm glad we're doing it on the show and and in the end of 2019, I created a program for Software Freedom Conservancy that was, uh, you could tell net into their server, and it would show a postcard 
made out of ASCII art of a little snowman with uh, um, or snow person with falling uh, snow. And uh, it, and it, you know, said seasons greetings from Software Freedom Conservancy, et cetera. Uh, and, you know, that was fun because it was, you know, making use of my, the ASCII art skills that I had picked up, um, I guess, also in a very no big deal way because I, you know, used to hang out my, I had a close friend and she ran a IRC channel that was very friendly towards ASCII art and I wanted to participate. Oh. So I started learning to do stuff and people were like, this is pretty good. And, you know, so I just started doing more of it and then started typing up at, sketching ascii art during classes actually I, I would like to just say that chris also draws ascii art on index cards as part of the doodling yeah that's true that was another example um and also it went for creating that thing for conservancy i was also using it as a test tool to be able to make sure that some of the the libraries i was working on were correctly functioning so um yeah, in some ways, I kind of feel like it was uh, another. Ex it was a example for me of something that was, I think, to use uh, your your phrasing, a no big deal context initially, where I was just you know hanging out with some friends on IRC, and then eventually it's like, oh, you know, whether or not this this nonprofit manages to make their fundraising this year is a big deal to me, and I want to help, and I was able to use it in a more larger, you know, a bigger deal way. And I know you've said. Um, it's not necessarily the case that all, you know, no big deal contexts should translate into big deal contexts, but I think it's nice that they often can. Um, yeah. Right, right. Yeah. Uh, at some point, um, if you have some desire to make a difference in some way and you realize, oh, here is a skill that I am now good enough at that I could bring it to mm -hmm. bear. Hey, that's great. Also, you know? I feel like having a skill that you're good enough at in smaller communities like free software or um or advocacy or campaigning or things like that in these kind of like smaller more grassrootsy types of scenarios uh you start off good enough and then you just learn on the fly i thought what you were going to say is that in a small group even if you just have a little bit of that skill to everybody else, that's a superpower. That is true. Right. Yeah. And I, I think uh, um, that that's one of the reasons why I think uh, like Sumana's uh, well known as uh, free software's premier uh, um, stand-up comedy artist. <laughs> so, uh, so, so I, maybe uh, Sumana would not describe themselves in that way, but uh, I, I have seen some of your free software oriented stand-up comedy, though I understand it's not strictly stand-up comedy oriented, or, or not strictly free software oriented in your stand-up comedy, but because there aren't many other people uh, trying to fulfill that intersection, uh, it makes you very notable in that. So would you like to talk about your background in stand-up comedy and how it eventually overlapped into this and other domains? Sure. Sure, sure. So uh, I should also give a shout out here to Danny O'Brien mm. of the Electronic Frontier Foundation, who is also a stand-up comedian, uh, because I think that if, if he uh, decided to do more stand-up comedy than he is currently doing, then uh, I would I would start perhaps getting sick. <laughs> I mean, that is fine. That is, that is fine. It's fine. It's fine. Because... He's he's very very funny and he has uh, a lot of interesting uh, stories to tell as well. So 
when I was a child, uh, I liked to entertain people. I liked to learn and tell jokes. That was kind of my understanding of what stand-up comedy was, was that you stood on stage and you told jokes, uh, perhaps that you had learned by heart from Reader's <laughs> Digest magazine. <laughs> Uh, I believe there, if, if, if it turns out someday that someone had a camcorder at the sixth grade <laughs> talent show that I participated in, then, you know, I'll, I'll have some, uh, some fossil records, right? Uh, eventually I got, uh, I didn't do any more up specifically, although I did some amount of just, you know, public speaking, uh, in school contexts and, uh, my, my parents, Indian related groups and things like that, uh, for some time. And then I got to college and I enjoyed watching stand-up comedy, so sometimes I went to stand-up nights. And maybe the first half of the night would be a professional, uh, and the second half would be open mic. So I saw some people do the open mic. I thought, oh, man, mm. I can do better than that. Uh, and so I did a little bit uh, for open mics. I, I got good enough that I had at least one compensated gig as the MC for a charity event. And I placed in a competition of some kind. Um, I graduated from college. I lived in SF. And I just, I dabbled, right? And I made some friends uh, as well in the um, San Francisco stand-up comedy scene. But I didn't particularly want that to be my career. Um, I was interested in doing it. But then I moved to New York City. And I had no particular interest in competing with the people who really want to make it in stand-up, right? I didn't want to have to stand on a street corner for hours handing out free tickets to tourists so that I could earn enough, okay, you got five people to come in the door, therefore you get five mm -hmm. minutes on stage. Mm -hmm. You know, that was not something that I wanted to be that I was interested in. Um, but a few years later in 2011, I was talking with Tom Limoncelli, who is a system administrator and an organizer in various conferences. And he was interested in finding uh, some speakers, some entertainment for an IT community conference or system administrators that was going to happen uh, a little bit later that year. And I said, well, I can do stand-up. So I developed some material and I did a, uh, I think it was called the only intentionally funny keynote you will ever see or something. <laughs> Fantastic title. <laughs> Some bombastic title like that. Uh, and so that was in 2011. And not long after that, I just kind of kept doing this. Sometimes when I was going to a tech conference, I said, well, I have some material that I could, because I had developed some material now, right? Uh, and so I built on that and kept things that people loved uh, and that were not out of date. And then I, you know, added more and more. And so every once in a while at a conference, either I just pulled something together ad hoc and I say, hey, do people want to see some stand-up? Okay, well, let's just gather at this time at this place, like a hacky sack circle, right? Just like no amplification, nothing. Maybe someone records it like it's a bootleg concert video. How often do people say no? Because I imagine that you're like, does anyone want stand-up comedy on this very specific niche? And everyone's like, yes. There exist people who don't like chocolate. There exist people who don't like stand-up comedy. There exist people who don't like Star Trek. I accept these as facts <laughs> of the world. Fair enough. And so most recently this year, I performed at Guadec, the GNOME Users and Developers European Conference, uh, online via Big Blue Button, which is free software. So that's great. And I performed as well uh, just now, uh, uh, about a week before we're recording here at Siegel, the Seattle GNU Linux Conference. And when I am preparing my stand-up, there's a lot of writing on scraps of paper 
There's a lot of talking with friends and looking at notebooks for things that I've jotted down earlier. And uh, these days, because of the pandemic, a lot of those conversations with friends are via phone calls and video calls, some of which use free software like Signal and Jitsi, and some of which do not. Uh, because that other friend of mine, for whatever reason, prefers or needs to be uh, talking, excuse me, via Google Meet or Zoom or something mm-hmm. like that. Although generally, when I'm talking to free software people, they are uh, comfortable using free software methods. And often what I'm doing is I, I get an idea about something that I kind of want to wiggle at because it's incongruous. Because there's something that doesn't fit, something in our lives, something in the world of free software that is surprising or bothersome. And then I can sort of think about why is this happening and how would you extrapolate forward from that? What is the absurd hypothetical that you can spin out of that? I gave a actually a training a few times called You, Yes, You Can Do Stand-Up Comedy, which kind of gives you the procedures for taking that weird thing that happens and turning it into some, some observational humor. So that uh, I, I start, you know, with some, maybe some loose ideas about things that might be interesting to talk about. And maybe I have a pun or two or a, a bit of wittery that just comes into my mind, usually as I'm talking with someone or as I'm reading something and try to jot it down. And then uh, I have some collection of thoughts or ideas that I want to kind of connect together. And I find that practicing is really important and useful for this. So uh, for the performance in July, I literally contacted something like 15 or 20 people to say, Hey, could I practice for you? Do you have half an hour or an hour where I'll say some things to you? Hopefully you will laugh and then you'll give me feedback about what you liked and what you didn't. And so in the process of saying funny things to a particular person or to a set of people, I often find uh, new material, better material, polish, you know, more digression, interesting ways of thinking about those things so that I, I iterate, I polish, I come up with new stuff. And then by the time that I'm doing the proper performance, one, you know, I hope, by the time that I'm doing the proper performance, it has a lot more substance and polish to it. Plus, it's an excuse to call your friends. Which is very important. So, if we're not putting you on the spot too much, uh, I know you haven't had time to call your friends and uh, and practice, but would you mind giving us an example of your stand-up? Sure. So this is uh, something that I performed at Siegel in uh, mid-November 2020, and there will be a full recording out, I hope, in a few months. But here's a little excerpt. This year I've kind of gotten into baths. Uh, which are like a psychological Faraday cage. (laughs) While you are in a bath, you are probably not using that many electronic devices. And I, uh, I wanted to get some nice smelling bath soap. I got some bubble bath. All right. It smells like ginger. Okay, great. I like the smell of ginger. And then also on the bottle, it said detox and energize. Why is smelling good? Not enough. Why does it have to do stuff? I got some other, I got some bath soap uh, that smells like lavender. Great. I love lavender. There's an entire industry, right? A lot of people love the smell of lavender. But also the bottle said, promote wellness. Why does it need to promote anything? It's not a social media intern. (laughs) I got another, uh, there was something that was peppermint. All right, great. Classic. Good scent. It says, 
calm and soothing. It's an essential oil, not an essential worker. Oh, yeah. Why does everything have to have a side hustle? I just, I like smells. That's one of the things I miss about technology conferences in person is that second or third day where because you're all staying at the same hotel, you smell the same because <laughs> you're all using the same soap. I would pay uh, if I could get, if I could say to somebody, look, just give me something that smells like that particular Portland, Oregon hotel soap from 2011. <laughs> From when, so I have the memories of that conference come back, and maybe that would help me remember some passwords that I've forgotten, <laughs> things that I set up for like a work week. I, I also miss some of the free stuff you get at a conference, like you get a lens cloth. I mean, I could use, I could use more lens cloths. I would like that. Uh, you know those USB sticks, those branded ones, and you kind of feel like maybe you shouldn't use them. It's like taking candy from a stranger, and then you sort of do the threat modeling. <laughs> Of like, well, but they're probably not active. And then one day it comes and you just really need something because you're printing something somewhere else, you know. And so then you <laughs> you grab the USB stick and you just decide to resolve that cognitive dissonance by just, okay, I'm just going to do it. <laughs> I, I, the fact that I cannot get any free lens cloths from any large corporations, I just want to, I, I got to file a bug against 2020. <laughs> <laughs> this is my main skill as a project manager, do not tell my clients, is filing a bug report that is so good that they feel a little bad if they don't fix it. <laughs> so I would like to file a bug against at least most of 2020. I believe the, really, the body of that bug would just go, ah! <laughs> There's often a character limit on these things. I would have to watch out for that. Uh, there would be a problem if the maintainer just closed it as works for me. <laughs> That would be troubling. I, I think that how to file a good bug report should be taught in school. It's a really important skill. And not just in writing and English. It should be taught in self-defense. Because that is a self-defense skill to file a new bug. <laughs> the, if, you, if you would like to see good bug reports, I should probably put some examples of those in my book. But I think a lot of us have seen some bad bu bug reports that just make you wonder... Is this person in my universe or in sort of an alternate dimension that also uses our version of SMTP? <laughs> I, a friend of mine uh, saw a bug report for a Linux distribution, and the entirety of the bug report said, can I click on download? <laughs> <laughs> what is the mental model? Can I counterfile a bug against you <laughs> for asking this question? There's a law of physics. People are going to file bugs. Uh, and, and so then I, I talk a little bit more about um, weird bugs, uh, weird bug reports that I've seen, some of which were not in bug trackers. They were flames on a mailing list. <laughs> so those are some of the bits that I did. And, and I like that in this, you know, there's a chunk of my comedy here that I could do right on, uh, on, on a variety show, right? That yeah. I think uh, anybody who uses... Bath pro scented bath products will be able to empathize with, but also there's an aspect there about what it's like to be in an industry where you travel for conferences, and then the idea of filing bugs, mm -hmm. uh, which you're much more likely to be able to do in free software. Mm -hmm. Well, you brought up that 2020s bug tracker. I I just have to say um, that did scare me a bit because I briefly imagined being the bug triage 
uh, oh. volunteer on 2020 or or paid employee. Um, either way, uh, that that does not sound like a fun job. Well, I also <laughs> feel like contact tracing is the bug tracker for 2020. <gasps> That's true. Oh. It's like GDB for um for for our <laughs> our pandemic. Yeah. Oh my god. Oh. Um, so I, I keep a bunch of these notes uh, in a physical folder. Um, and so that's the crumpling that you're hearing. I, I care about us as people, right? Being able to share with each other stories that reflect our experiences together. There is an understanding in the world of um, commercial media that representation matters, that if you can't see yourself in the mirror, then you're a monster, right? Monsters are the only things that can't see themselves in mirrors. Mm -hmm. And being able to see reflections of yourself helps you reflect on your experiences and feel understood and gives you another lens to understand yourself and, uh, and who you might be and what you might be interested in. And I really like that in my standup, I can provide people with a little bit of, you know, of course, laughter, but also that feeling of being understood in a way that perhaps they hadn't felt quite before. I mm-hmm. similarly, I would like for there to be more narrative art that's serious as well, uh, that both that comedic and serious about the experience of being in free software, the experience of being a programmer, and so on. There's a little bit. I think that the TV show Halt and Catch Fire gets into it a bit. There's a fantastic book by Ellen Ullman called The Bug which is about the experience of trying to chase down a bug. Um, It's basically a detective novel, right? Um, And some of these were inspirations for the things that I did over the last few years when I co-wrote and starred in some plays that were at Python conferences, at Pi Gotham, the New York City Python conference, and also a RubyConf in uh, Los Angeles. And and, uh, we, my, my friend Jason and I, created a few plays about the experience of being a programmer, being a technologist, being a free software person, and so on. And then partly based on those experiences, I co-founded a uh, an arts festival where people could do more of those kinds of things at PyCon North America last year, and that was called The Art of Python. And mm-hmm. I it was going to happen again this year, and then PyCon went virtual and The Art of Python got canceled. Um, but there is hunger for art in a fine art sense that is particularly narrative, right, in the world of fiction and plays and things like that, about the experience of being a programmer mm-hmm. or, being a, or being a free software person so that we can tell our stories to each other in ways that can sometimes reflect different things in, a, in the way fiction can versus just straight um, you know, essays and uh, podcasts, and, uh, or I should say uh, nonfiction podcasts. And I think that it's also important to have these things that are written by people who are participants in the free software community too, right? Not like not like the examples of geek culture that you often see in uh, pop culture media where it's written by the people who are frustrated with the nerds who have all of the jokes that they don't understand. Mm. Um, it's interesting that... so. I I would want to sort of disentangle that, right? Um, I think that part of what you're dealing with there is who's the audience? The audience is mostly people who are not part of that demographic. And Mm -hmm. often the authors and the um, 
the conveyors, right, of those jokes are not representatives of, of the world that they're talking about. So I think that if you had uh, people with a bunch of free software knowledge as the, let's say, writers and actors, but they're still aiming at an audience of people who don't have that experience, it's often not going to be very satisfying. And so um, I actually think it's very feasible for someone who is not a free software person to start uh, to come. And so there is a um, there's a play and I'm sorry to to bring it down a bit, um, but there is there's actually multiple pieces of art about Aaron Swartz, mm-hmm. who uh, died seven plus years ago and who we all still miss, uh, those of us who knew him, um, who was a free software creator and participant. And I was part of a process where playmakers, most of whom are not, I think uh, possibly none of whom were involved in the free software community, these actors and playwrights interviewed people who had known Aaron and then uh, had a play where they portrayed themselves trying to work on the play and monologues by the people that they had interviewed. And I was one of the people who got portrayed, which meant that I had a bit of a shock when I showed up and realized that there was someone pretending to be me on stage. Yeah. Uh, That was unexpected. Uh, And so I think it's possible to do your research and to make art that is uh, meaningful and interesting and says something about the the world of free software but uh yeah it's definitely going to have to include the perspectives of people from free software not doing so um might be very sad in that um we might lose the ability to have a sense of our present moment uh in the future there's a book and then also a recent critique of that book um, a book called hackers by stephen levy who uh i think was a big portion of pushing forward this mystique of the hacker ethic um, and was a big influential book on me when I was, you know, like 18 years old, right? And then there's recently a wonderful talk slash article called Programming is Forgetting Towards the New Hacker Ethic by Ellison Parrish, uh, talking about and critiquing that book, including its uh, lack of uh, representation of women in the book and also dismissiveness of um, actually very accomplished women who it does mention in the book. Um, but uh, and I remember after reading that article, I felt kind of sad because um, I didn't feel like I had anything else to read other than that book that kind of represented the era. And it felt like the lack of material meant that I was um, feeling kind of um, limited in my ability to kind of explore a period of history. And so it just kind of strikes me that if we don't take the time to do, as you say, and try to construct narratives about the present and get multiple perspectives of constructing narratives about the present, um, it, it may be a loss for the future in some way. So I, I don't know, maybe that was really silly, but it, it was just something that was stuck on my mind. I get it. I get what you're saying, right? I, I'm, I end up being so focused on thinking about people now needing um, to hear s- stories and to understand things about our experiences, our industry, and so on. Uh, but I think you're right that these, the works, both of you know fiction and nonfiction, that give us narratives and ways to understand our, our industries and our, our groups and our endeavors, they are important for people in the future. Um, they are important to share, here's who we thought we were, here's what we thought we were doing. 
Yeah, that's interesting. It's something I feel like uh, I'm going to think about a lot more after this episode is is what we are and aren't doing towards that end. And this is, I want to bring up, I keep talking about narratives here because when I mention to people anything having to do with art and computers, very often a place people's mind goes is computer-generated art or yeah. um, art that is in some way um, abstractly representational about computing, about, for instance, how an algorithm works or something like that. Uh, and these are fine. These are good. But the a reason why I have concentrated on curating and making narrative art is because I feel like there's more of that missing, right? There, there's not as much of that as, as I would like there to be. Uh, I would say that once you expand and start thinking about uh, art about the experience of free software and programming and related things, uh, not just being, for instance, books and plays and TVs, XKCD may be the most lasting piece of art about the experience of being in free software and being a programmer. That might be true. Yeah. So we are past the hour mark at this point. And so we should probably start wrapping up. But before we uh, conclude, I think we would like to hear um, a little bit about what you do uh, in your day to day. So uh, maybe a little bit on your consulting and consulting specifically in floss. Sure. Yeah. I started in 2015 with change set consulting, focusing on short-term project management in open source projects. And I've worked on a variety of projects. Now I worked uh, with Zulip, which is an open source Slack alternative written in Python. I've worked with the Electronic Frontier Foundation's HTTPS Everywhere, the browser extension to help secure more web requests. And most recently, I've done a lot of work in the Python ecosystem with the packaging tools. I helped, I uh, was the project manager for the big overhaul of the Python package index to get a new version up and running and the old one decommissioned. And currently I am working on PIP as the project manager. And I find that there's, you know, there's a particular craft and skill to maintainership that is somewhat independent of being a lead developer or an architect or a founder. And I had the sneaking suspicion, and I think it's been proven out over and over, that maintainership itself is a skill that can be used and taught kind of independent of what the project is, what language it's written in, and so on. And because I have found that projects get stuck, open source projects get stuck, and that stuckness often manifests as, you know, we haven't put out a release in a long time. And perhaps different people don't quite agree on the causes of that or don't feel they have the capability to get the project unstuck. And that is sometimes the, the symptom, right, of a, a larger problem that people in the project uh, don't actually agree on why the project exists, on why people should use their software rather than some competitor, what their goals are and what's important and what's urgent and what the threats are that they're trying to guard against. And 
there's a bunch of things that I do when I come into a project that's new to me to assess it, uh, to start doing some substantive work that doesn't require too much trust from them, and then offer my services to do more things. There's a variety of uh, ways that goes and not enough people know these skills. So I'm working on something that is like a book, probably a book, maybe not a book, maybe a set of trainings or something like that. And I don't know what the title will be, but it is going to be something like getting projects unstuck or maintaining open source software or something like that. And I uh, am very interested in people who think that this is something they would like talking with me about it, talking with me about skills they don't have and they wish they had, skills they have now that they wish they'd been able to learn earlier uh, in terms of helping projects level up on some uh, on some dimension and, and move faster uh, in the world of open source software. This is going to be something aimed at people who already have some open source and free software contributor experience. There's not going to be intro to Git or here's what open source is or something like that, right? You already know mm -hmm. how to contribute to free software as an individual contributor, but maybe you've never managed something before or you've never managed a free software project before. So you need to come into an existing project and help uh, take a look at it, see what's not working, improve things and leave. Because so leaving is part of the cycle. So that's part of the sustainability cycle. Not that you need to leave right away, but uh, you need to start making plans, you know, not too long after uh, you start working on it, ideally. Well, and also you want to leave your project in a state that someone else can take it up. That's right. And it's not just reliant on the one maintainer living forever. Right. I think uh, one thing that we're often bad at talking about is endings and transitions uh, individual people, and also the idea that maybe the proper resolution for a particular project that's stuck is for it to end, is for it to go mm -hmm. into archival, no more maintenance intended mode. So uh, right now, the idea is that this book will have a few different sections. First, settling in, things like project audit inventory, informal conversations with the people who brought you in, taking on routine responsibilities like bug triage, building trust, demonstrating credibility, fairness, trustworthiness, understanding what conversation platforms there are here and what the expectations are. And then beginning to take charge, doing things like running meetings, dealing with budgets, setting priorities, making releases, noticing and dealing with situations involving people. And that includes contributors who need guidance, contributors who just aren't very good, neuroatypical people, colleagues who are having trouble with consistency and expectations, toxic people, and so on. Uh, another section would be about making change. So at analyzing, all right, what is the current state of things? And then working on infrastructure building, digital, social, financial, thinking about funding, thinking about what money could do and writing grant proposals and making other forms of change. I haven't finished that bit of the outline yet. And uh, finally, passing the baton, thinking about sustainability, finding your successors, saying no, and stepping away, which is another section that I need to build out more in my outline. If any of this sounds interesting to you, please contact me. I am looking for readers for early chapters, and I especially want to hear from you if you are someone who wishes you had had this book earlier in your career, or there's someone in your life who you wish could have this book right now. Mm-hmm. 
And we'll put contact info in the show notes then. All right. Well, you mentioned that your consulting business is Change ChangeSet, and I think the website is ChangeSet.nyc. Are you for hire currently? Is this something? If somebody is interested in leveraging your skills, uh, would you like them to be aware that they can reach out and uh, and and contact and hire through your business? Yes, uh, ChangeSet.nyc gives you more information about what kinds of projects and what kinds of services I offer. I have much more availability starting in January. Starting in January 2021, uh, I'm working on a few projects right now so that I can't take on more stuff and I'm trying to work a lot on the book. But uh, I'd be happy to have some introductory, free, gratis, complimentary, no money conversations in the next few months, uh, in November and December of 2020, uh, so that we can talk about whether it would make sense to bring me in for something uh, starting in 2021. And that is uh, sometimes all you need. Sometimes just having a half hour conversation with somebody ends up causing you to realize, oh, here's what I need to do next. And then, you know, there you go. We're all happy. Well, then after we close out 2020 with a giant won't fix. (laughs) 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 On January January 1st, right? It becomes worse for me. (laughs) That's right. That's right. Okay. So we have so many more bullet points on our outline that we did not have time to get to today. Uh, So if you're willing and able in the future, Sumino, we would love to have you back so that we can cover more of the many, many interesting things that do and have thoughts on. Thank you so much. I would really love to come back. And I'll also mention to people listening that I am also available to do stand-up comedy specifically about (laughs) nerd topics uh, in other contexts at other conferences, conventions, dinner parties, and what have you. Excellent. (laughs) Very good. Well, thank you for coming on the show. And uh, I guess that's a wrap for now. So goodbye, everybody. Take care. Have Have a see you all in a week or at worst two. Bye, everybody. Bye. -bye. Thanks, everybody. Foss and Crafts is released under the Creative Commons Attribution Sharealike 4.0 International License. It's hosted by Morgan Lemmerweber and Christopher Lemmerweber. The intro music is composed by Christopher Lemmerweber, meaning myself, and Milky Tracker, and is released under the same license as the show. The outro music is Enchanted Tiki 86, composed by Alex Smith of The Cynic Project, and is waved into the public domain under CC0 1.0. See cynicmusic.com for more information. You can get in contact with us on the Fediverse, Foss and Crafts at octodon.social, on Twitter as at Foss and Crafts, or you can email us, podcast at fossandcrafts.org. We also have a chat room. Join our community, hash Foss and Crafts, on irc.freenode.net. If you'd like to support the show, you can donate at patreon.com forward slash C-W-E-B-B-E-R. That's it for this week. Until next time, stay free. And stay crafty. Um, uh, all right, let's return to InWorld. Okay. All right, so... Uh, Morgan... Oh. Okay, I was, I was about to ask prompt. if you wanted to do it, and you're going to do it, so go ahead.